Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. After a while, they broke apart, but only long enough for them to get into the chaise lounge together. They sat silently, just holding each other, for a long time, until the sky started to turn dim and turn red and purple over the San Gabriels. Bosch knew that there were still secrets he carried, that they would keep for now, and he would avoid the black place of loneliness for just a little while longer. Do you want to go away this weekend? He asked. Get away from the city? We can take that trip up to Long Pine. Stay in the cabin until tomorrow night. That would be wonderful. I could, uh, we could use it. A few minutes later, she added, We might not be able to get a cabin, Harry. There's so few of them, and they're usually booked by Friday. I already had one reserved. She turned around so she could face him. She smiled slyly and said, Oh, so you knew all the time. You were just hanging around, waiting for me to come back. No sleepless nights, no surprises. He didn't smile. He shook his head. And for a few moments, he looked out over the dying lights reflected on the west wall of the San Gabriels. I didn't know Sylvia, he said. I hoped. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages which is set up just for our fans. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content where you'll find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Now that all that bullshit's out of the way, it's time to close this investigation out with a review of Chapter 29 through 33 of The Concrete Blonde. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we explore how everyone likes to taste the sausage, but don't like to know how it's made. Shape chapters 25 through 28 of The Concrete Blonde. And today we will be taking a deep dive into chapters 29 through 33. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. And now... The Thin Blue Line Podcast, Harry Bosch. It's time to open up the murder book 
and turn the page to the chronological record so we can do an investigative summary on the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Harry races to Sylvia, finding that the highway is congested until he remembers to place his detective bubble on top of his car. The note threatened to take his precious blonde off his hands, and now Harry believes that Sylvia is in trouble. Edgar radios in the back, and Harry tells him to send a uniform unit to Sylvia's home immediately, and then head into the station and secure the note he left at his desk and fill Rollenberg and Irving in. Harry then radios the surveillance teams to pick up Locke if he is home and break him in. When Harry arrives to Sylvia's, a uniformed officer is standing vigilant outside. The officer informs that no one appears to be home, and then he asks if he can be released. Harry sends him away, and then asks Edgar to put out a bolo for Sylvia and her Cherokee. Shortly, Harry is contacted by Sylvia, who tells him that she was at the Fontenot's paying her respects. Harry instructs Sylvia to lock herself into his home and do not answer the door for anyone but him. Upon his arrival, Harry is relieved that Sylvia is okay. Sylvia asks Harry as to why he deals with so many awful people and the things he has to do, and how does he keep going. Later at a hotel, Sylvia asks Harry for some space to contemplate their relationship. Harry agrees, but sleeps on the beach as he stands vigil to watch Sylvia through the night. The next day, Harry's late getting into court, having waited until Sylvia was on her way to school. He's surprised to see that neither Judge Keyes nor Chandler is there. With a growing fear, Harry gets up to make a phone call, but the judge comes in and calls the jury and asks them if they have any questions. Keyes informs the jury that Chandler had a scheduled conflict, but they should continue their deliberations. As soon as the judge leaves the bench, Harry heads out the door and calls Edgar and tells him to meet him at Chandler's house and explains that she is a blonde. En route to Chandler's, Harry sees a page from the clerk informing him that the deliberations is over and he should return back to court. Upon his arrival, Harry notices that Chandler is not there and Judge Keyes calls in the jury and proceeds to read the verdict The jury finds Harry guilty of violating Norman Church's civil rights, but only awards the family $2 in damages. Upon leaving, Bosch receives communications from Edgar to respond to Chandler's home, where she was found dead in the same manner as the follower, but with some slight differences. Bosch searches Chandler's home for clues and finds a note concerning the location of the concrete blonde. Chandler was right. The note was a copy of the original. But unlike the original, this note was mailed to Chandler. While still processing the crime scene, Dr. Locke arrives at Chandler's home and informs Bosch and Edgar that he was in Las Vegas for the weekend. Due to the type of questions and the manner in which Bosch and Edgar asked them, 
Dr. Locke understands that he is now the suspect. Reluctantly, Dr. Locke explains that he was in Las Vegas with a student and has immediate proof concerning his alibi. Edgar quickly confirms Dr. Locke's alibi, to which Dr. Locke agrees to continue to assist with the investigation. As Bosch is talking to Dr. Locke, he observes Bremer interviewing neighbors. Dr. Locke confirmed the question of Bosch concerning that the follower will want to gloat about the killings. Bosch makes a show of going to his car and is shortly met by Bremer. While Bremer is interviewing Bosch, Bosch requests a cigarette from him in which he pulls a pack of Marlboros from his coat pocket and then lights it with his left hand. After sleeping for a couple hours, Bosch puts in motion a plan of action. He seeks out the garage in which Bremer parks his car and proceeds to follow Bremer to his home. Bosch approaches Bremer's home and is confronted by the reporter, questioning him why he's following him. Bosch tells Bremer that he's ready for a more in-depth interview and invites himself into Bremer's home for a beer. Bremer tells him to go into his living room and Harry stashes a recorder between the grates of a radiator before Bremer comes back. During their conversation, Bosch tricks Bremer into confessing that he is the follower and the person that killed Chandler. The next morning, Harry enjoys the irony of reading the murder story of the above the full page written by the murderer himself. He manages to keep the press off by calling Irving on a landline and filling him in on the booking of Bremer on a no-bail hold just before midnight. Later that morning, Harry is sitting in front of the filing deputy, watching him carefully as he goes over the details of the arrest. The young filing clerk, fresh out of law school, and after hearing all, tells Harry how he's going to be, beginning with the fact that he intends to wait until they have more evidence before filing. Harry dresses down the young clerk, convincing him to file one count of murder. In compensation for all the overtime he worked, Harry takes a week off. He later reads an article in the Times concerning a story that was done on Bremer's background. It included a picture of him and his disciplinary mother. She was bleached blonde with large breasts with too much makeup. Bosch also receives a phone call from Edgar updating him of the investigation. Edgar explains that the investigative team found a cache of evidence in a storage locker owned by Bremer. In it was all the items Bremer utilized to control and murder his victims, to include video evidence of all the murders. Edgar also informs Bosch it appears that Bremer would take a plea of life in jail in exchange for identifying the locations of his victims. Sometime later, Sylvia arrives at Harry's home and informs him that she loves him and wants to try to keep that love alive. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues 
for the defining theme for chapters 29 through 33, mirrors the last novel by Nathan Hawthorne, which paints a surreal picture of guilt, love, and responsibility. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast. Harry Bosch. And we're going to wrap up this, my goodness, the third book, The Concrete Blonde, in this episode. And as usual, Michael Conley, I, I, I've been telling you guys from the very beginning that freaking Michael Conley is a genius. And I look at him and his writing as a python that slowly wraps around you. And we're going to get into that during this podcast or this episode. And so let's first start out with uh, Harry rushing off after receiving the note from last chapter. He received a note from the follower and infers that well, he took it as though Sylvia was in danger. And he's rushing on the highway and, you know, the traffic is, is really heavy. And again, Michael Connolly depicts a life of a detective because normally we don't uh, respond code one or emergency code or whatever the jurisdiction you call it when they call license sirens. And so we're not used to having a bubble trying to maneuver through traffic. And as Harry did here, he forgot to put the bubble up top. Now, I can tell you, the most valuable, for me, that bubble is most important, especially our new detective cars that did not look like police cars um, in order to avoid getting a, a parking ticket. That's when that bubble was most important and valuable to me, not speeding down the um, highway trying to respond to a scene. Because remember, most detectives are re- caught after the crime scene is set and to follow up to do your investigator work. So again, Michael Conley was spot on with that. And you know, I'm, let's get into what I mean by Michael Conley and his freaking... Just as, well, not freaking, but his brilliance. Because you didn't see it coming. And that's why I keep saying, that's why I love his books. And now we're into his third book. And he cleverly sets the stage from all the way in chapter chapter five. All the way in chapter five, again, from the book. She smiled. She's wearing khaki pants and a pink shirt with a button collar. He knew she didn't wear dresses on Tuesdays and Thursdays because those were her assigned days as a school rover. Sometimes she had to run after students. Sometimes she had to break up fights. The sun coming through the push door turned her dark blonde hair golden. I mean, right there, he gives a hint um, in Sylvia when it comes to her having blonde hair. Again, it just stuck up on me. I said, that was chapter five. Oh my goodness. You know, he also set the stage back in chapter eight concerning Sylvia and possibly being a blonde. I mean. Just so subtle. From the book, he bent over and kissed her and moved inside. She had on the gray t-shirt dress. She liked wearing around the house after work. Her hair was loose and down to her shoulders, the blonde highlights capturing the light of the living room. I mean, so I'm like, oh, just right. So now we have the, the uh, follower sending a note talking about I'm going to take this blonde off your hands for you or something to that effect. So Harry is not wrong by racing to think that the follower is going after Sylvia. And then en route, he calls the surveillance team, Sheehan and Opel, to go in and see if they can get locked and bring him in because now all covert surveillances are over. 
Now Harry wants to go in and bring him in the box probably and, and investigate or interrogate him. And as Harry arrives to Sylvia's home, you know, he has an officer sitting outside who's looked very bored and pretty much infers, look, what am I doing here? I could be doing more important things about, opposed to just sitting here babysitting someone's home. And, you know, Harry rushes in, he searches Sylvia's home and she's not there. And now he's just apoplectic. He doesn't know what to do. He's just sitting there with his hands and his head, you know, just, you know, hoping and praying that Sylvia is alive. And then Bosch receives a page from his house and he calls it back and it's Sylvia. You know, he's, it is a sigh of relief. And Sylvia tells Harry that she was at the Fontenot's paying her respects. And Harry then asks his, uh, Sylvia, hey, lock all the doors and go into my closet. There's a weapon loaded and protect yourself. And she's scared. She's like, I, what's going on? He says, Sylvia, just do as I say. Don't open the door unless it's from me. You know, and that actually brings back a story. I investigated a lot of uh, criminals and, and narcotics. And I was very good at that. And so much so, at times I would get, you know, very veiled threats from guys on the street saying, hey, if I ever see you off duty, it's just going to be you and me. And you, you, you take those threats seriously enough. And, you know, but so one time I was in the city and I was early on dating my wife, matter of fact. And I was, we were coming out of the movie theater. And as I came out of the movie theater, I saw this guy who, I just, who had just had threatened me. You know, again, it wasn't so much of a threat that I went to ID or, or something to that effect. It was one of those, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And so, but when I saw him, he saw me. And I instantaneously remembered that threat. And so I pushed my wife out, of, well, then girlfriend, but I pushed her out of the way. And I just shoved her. She's like, what the hell are you doing? And I told her, take cover. And at the same time, I made a motion with my weapon. And I started going for my weapon. And the guy saw me doing that motion. And he looked at me like, oh, shit. And he took off running. But, but just in that instance, I mean, again, I'm trying to give you guys the audience that that does happen. That, that sometimes as investigators, we go after adversarials. And they do threaten us. And this is what Harry was thinking, because remember, Dr. Lockett told Harry a long time ago in this book that, hey, be careful, because this follower was very smart, and he's very dangerous. And he's also mad at Harry, because Harry took away Norman Church, which he was following and disguising his own homicides, his own killings, based on what Norman Church was doing. So Harry rightfully thinks that Sylvia is in danger, and tells Sylvia, protect yourself. And, you know, one of the things that Michael Conley, again, got correctly is that conversation you have with your significant other. Because after that, again, this was early on, this is before I got married, and I had a conversation like um, something similar to what Bosch and Sylvia was having. Again, wasn't, I wasn't in homicide, but, you know, you, you know, bringing your work home and the things you do and the danger that you deal with on a constant basis, and that was a heartfelt conversation. And Again, Michael Conley described it pretty well that you have to have that conversation with your significant others because they need to know all aspects of what you do and what it entails. And are they up for it? I mean, those are the type of conversations that you need to have at the beginning of your relationship because it's hard for significant others to adjust. And that's sometimes, and again, you see it here. I, I've always told you that Sylvia is 
I, to me, is a quintessential police officer or law enforcement significant other. But even this gets to her because after her response to the house, they then go to a hotel. And Sylvia just says to Harry, I, you know, I need some time apart. And I think it's also, you know, she just lost her, a student of hers. Now she has the, this thing that this specter of this particular um, killer might target her because of Harry. Well, that's a lot to, to swallow. That's a lot to process. And to Harry's credit, he said, look, Sylvia, take all the time you need. So now we see the next day, Bosch responds to court and he's running late. And he's running late because he sat and waited for Sylvia to go to work. And as he gets in the court, Chandler and or Judge Keyes aren't there. And then when Chandler's not there, Bosch starts putting more pieces together. It's like, oh shit. And you get that pit in the stomach like, oh boy. So after Judge Keyes tells the jury to continue deliberating, again, I said it before in a previous podcast that we've now come across become accustomed to the law enforcement community and, again, how true Michael Connelly keeps it when it comes to Harry Bosch. And we see, again, Harry rushes out, gets to the payphone, calls communications, and gives them his information to verify who he is to get Chandler's home address. And, again, he did the same thing in the Black Echo. And, again, I love that continuity. I love that reaching back as you talk about something forward. Again, now we're just building piece by piece this whole law enforcement world that's really factual. But as things would happen, again, which is true, you know, as Harry was responding to Chandler's home, he gets a page from the clerk to say, hey, the jury's in. Um, you need to come back to court. And that happens a lot, especially, again, the clerk said it here. Over the weekend, jurors want to uh, just deliberate. They come back and say, hey, look, they didn't want to really change their mind over the weekend. Because they probably had the, their verdict on Friday, but it's a two-fold. Or one, like I said, one to get out of work. And two, just to make sure that everyone didn't have any second thoughts or any change of minds, they can do some more deliberating. And again, that happens a lot. That happens a lot. And as we see, the jury then comes in and they deliver a verdict that Harry was guilty for violating Norman Church's civil rights, but only approved $2 and compensatory damages. And you know what? I, I see, again, 1994, I can understand that. But as I said in prior, in prior podcasts, I think this was 2019. The jury would not have found him guilty of violating Norman Church's civil rights. Again, especially because of all the mass shootings that happened. And as I said before, now civilians want police officers to be more proactive, more um, involved opposed to reactive. I, so I, I honestly believe that Harry would not, based on the circumstances that he articulated, that a jury, would, again, would want to send a message, look, please go in there, do your job. We got your back. It also bears to point out how Bosch continually calls Edgar for things and how powerful the message of forgiveness is. Because I think he is not Harry missed his relationship with Edgar just as much as Edgar had remorse at betraying his, um, Harry's trust. And the fact of the matter that Harry keeps calling on Edgar over and over again in a time of crisis, again, just it's a testament to how much he does like Edgar. And so we see Harry also, as he responds back to court, 
he wishes he saw Chandler. Um, because, you know, as he, he said it a number of times, he admires Chandler. He, he admires that blue flame of hers, that fire, that, that tenacity of hers. And even though she, she right now has been <laughs> ripping him a new one, uh, Harry does not want to see this lady because she's just doing her job and she's damn good at it. And he didn't want to see her come to any harm. So as Harry is leaving, he uh, is approached by Brimmer. And, and Brimmer asks him for um, a statement. And I like the line that Harry says to Brimmer. He gives, what for? They said, I'm some type of constitutional goon. That right there, again, I get that. I get that. And that's that, razor, that razor's edge, that law enforcement that we live by. Um, and it's very difficult. It's not easy, and it's not for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart, I can tell you that. But, you know, no one wants to, and again, Harry says it, you know, you want your peers, the, these people who you protect and serve, you want them to trust and believe in you. And right now, Harry feels as though he's some type of goon. So then Harry responds to Chandler's home because he's gotten a call from Edgar saying, hey, you need to respond here, which then that, that in itself says, hey, his hunch was right that Chandler is now dead. And one of the lines I like to talk about, you know, pick apart a little bit, is again from the book. Bosch knew he had trained his minds to be almost like a psychopath. He practiced the psychology of objectification when at a death scene. Dead people weren't people. They were mere objects. And so this objectification that cops practice Again, not just so at the murder scenes, but just dealing with, if again, remember, we're dealing with people most of the time at their worst. And a lot of times, this imper- you got to be impersonal to get the job done because you can't get swallowed up in the emotions. And a lot of times, people, when cops aren't empathetic to what they're going through, they take it the wrong way. They think that the cops don't care. But sometimes, you have to be distant to do your job professionally. Because you don't want to then let your own objectivity get into the evidence at hand or so you can proceed in the most beneficial and most um, efficient way. So there, again, is this line, this delicate balance that cops have to be objective when they're doing their job, but also show some type of compassion. And But you it, both come at a price. And I've done both. And again, it's that balance because you can't bring that home every day because it's like, especially when you see just the ugliness that we see on a daily basis. Again, most people don't even don't even have an idea of how the dark side of society is. So while you're practicing this, you know, this distance that you have to, this wall you have to bring up, Bosch had spoke about it earlier. That's one of the things he loved about Sylvia because she saw the beauty in things while he saw the darkness in things. And that's why you need a good partner because, and again, I've said it before, my wife always is so, so upbeat when it comes to different situations Why I'm always, so, I'm usually very skeptical and cynical. And again, Michael Connelly captures that. You know, and I say again, this freaking, as I read this particular portion of the book, or we go over it, I then had to go back again to see how many times that freaking Michael Colley gave incidences and inferences that Honey Chandler was blonde and that she could be, a, now we confirmed that she's a victim. Again, from the book, Bosch saw the door in courtroom four open. 
and members of the church family came out, followed by their lawyer. They were breaking for lunch. Deborah Church and their two teenage daughters didn't want to look at him. But Honey Chandler, known by most cops in other federal court buildings, knew her as Money Chandler, stared at him with killer eyes as she passed. They were dark as burnt mahogany, set in a tan face with a strong jawline. She was an attractive female with smooth golden hair. Again, how slick that was. Look how just subtle that was, you know, that Michael Connolly did. And also here, one other time, again from the book, she had on her blue suit. It was probably her lucky suit. And that one tress of blonde hair was loose from the braid at the back of her neck. Again, now, okay, here's a blonde again, you know, the killer going, I didn't never, I never saw this coming. I never saw that one Sylvia would possibly be in in the sights of the follower. And now we know that that Chandler is dead and Michael Connelly had laid that groundwork. Again, that python that slowly coiled around you and now you're being really squeezed. And right now I'm like, I'm I'm so jaded with Michael Connelly and I'm always looking out for, okay, where's the clues? Where's the clues? Who did it? Who did it? But another powerful line as Bosch is surveying the scene that really stuck with me again from the book. Now he looked down at the naked and tortured body of Honey Chandler and no manner of mental tricks could prevent the horror he saw burning into his soul. For the first time in years as a homicide investigator, he wanted to close his eyes and just look away. I mean, again, that goes back to what I was saying because Harry kind of liked Honey Chandler in a little bit. No, he respected her. I would say like. Harry respected Honey Chandler. And the mere fact to see someone who you respect, you know, laid out in this manner, again, tortured and naked in this manner, he didn't want to see that. And I, again, that just to me tells you guys that the hardest, hardest, badass cop, we all still have soft spots. And again, that just to me humanizes Harry. He's not a robot. And, you know, we see at the crime scene, everyone defers to Harry. You know, he's the D3. He's the top-of-the-line investigator. And even Nixon goes to Harry and says, hey, what do you want me to do here, Harry? I mean, you know this case. You know this whole thing. What, would, what do you want me to do? And I like, I respect Nixon. And any good investigator, when you don't know and you have someone there who does know, and you have no problem to say, hey, well, hey I, look, I don't know it all. What would you do here, buddy? That, again, is a sign of a good investigator. And it's not like the um, Harvey Pounds or the um, Rollenbergs of the, of the police department. You got these investigators or, or cops who don't let their ego get in the way of serving the public. And again, Nixon did that by asking Harry what he wanted to do. But again, just to ducktail back on Harry and his feelings towards Honey Chandler, he said, well, look, I'll do anything you want me to. Just I don't want to go in there and see her like that. Again, that's just another testament to Harry and Michael Connelly capturing the human side of Harry Bosch. And if you guys remember back in the Black Echo, I kind of made reference to how most chiefs that I had, uh, I met, especially at big crime scenes, they stayed away from, or they stayed just inside the yellow tape. You know, make sure they get their picture in the press 
and looking very dutiful and very responsive and like pointing and giving, giving orders out. Well, we see here at this portion, and again, Michael Conley points that out because we have two chiefs standing at the doorway. You making sure they get the headshots for the camera. But also, but what do we see happen? Chief Irving comes down, comes, is coming down the stairs inside Chandler's house. And again, Irving just got on Bosch for being a cowboy, not following up on procedures and everything. And here he is. He's still being Chief Irving by making sure he's knee deep in whatever happens in that crime scene. And again, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, he's always getting on Harry for not changing, but here he is not changing himself. He's doing the exact same thing that got him in trouble in the Black Echo. So Bosch took on the responsibility of helping search Chandler's home. And Bosch finds the, uh, the book, the green book, The Marble Fawn. And inside there was the letter that the follower has sent to Chandler. And again, Chandler was wrong here because Harry said, give me the note. And we see why it was important because Chandler's not an investigator. She's not a criminal investigator. She was looking at that note for one thing, and Harry's looking at it for another, uh, in, in another manner. And Harry's manner in which he wanted that note was brought to light here because as we see, the note, the letter was mailed and it was a date stamped on there. So the fact that the letter was mailed to Chandler has great evidentiary value. And we see that Chandler here was wrong, and Bosch picked up on the fact that of that. And we also see that the criminal invest- the investigative team has noted that the follower now is changing. The profile is changing. You know, now he's torturing, biting, and burning his victims. They, again, he's never done that before. And that becomes um, apparent later on why important that is. So then we have Dr. Locke showing up at Chandler's house. And then you see Harry and Edgar set the stage for an interview. And Dr. Locke doesn't understand he's being set, not set up, but he's now walking into the lion's den. And they ask, what are you doing here? He said, oh, well, you know, you can't not hear about it. It was on the, um, the news media. And I just followed the cameras and the helicopters. And, I, you know, I got here. And he wanted to then, he had his own selfish reasons for going there because he wanted to be part of the case. Remember, Harry has shot him down by being part of the interview and all that kind of, and, and all that kind of stuff early on in the book. And we see Bosch is starting to attack Dr. Locke's alibi and where he was over the weekend. And things really get serious. You know, the shit really hits the fan when Edgar starts to advise the doctor of his Miranda rights. Now, again, something to pick up here, listeners, which is true. You know, you know the Miranda rights verbatim. Anybody with any amount of time who's done any arrests knows the Miranda rights verbatim. But again, how authentic Michael Conley is here is that we're trained to read it from the card over and over again. So there is no chance that any statement given by the, the defendant will be thrown out because he, wasn't, he or she wasn't properly Mirandized. And not only did, as you see, LAPD, but most police departments told Everyone, when you lock someone up, I know you know it by heart. I know you know it verbatim, but it's our policy for you to read it, the card. And then not only for us, it won't, not only did you read the card, it, this, is what I, this is what I would do. When, before Miranda, as I was Mirandizing you on the cards that we use, each line 
had to be signed and or checkmarked that, you know, I understand this right, I understand this right, I understand this right. So what I would do is I would start advising them and then I would break it down. I would slow down. Do you understand you have a right to remain silent? Yes, boom. Do you understand anything you say can and will be used in court law? Yes, boom. So I would then complete the whole Miranda card and it was witnessed and I totally made sure that the defendant understood their rights and if they want to proceed, let's keep on going. I did not want, because it's not worth your time. Again, cops, if you're listening to me, it's not worth your time to go through an exhaustive motions hearing and waste all that time and effort when it could have just been solved if you properly Mirandize somebody. And it's really, it's really not that difficult because I'm said now, and I'm going to always say, when defendants want to talk, they're going to talk. And again, there is an art of how you Mirandize and when you Mirandize and how you flow it into your conversation. Now, I'm not going to say that. And it, again, it's a practiced art. So Dr. Locke gives Harry and Edgar his alibi, saying, hey, look, I was in Vegas. Um, the young lady I'm with right now, she can prove it. Edgar goes and actually confirms his alibi. Again, I like uh, from the book. If you don't make any noise about me being with a student, I won't make any noise about this, this interrogations. <laughs> and then Harry comes back over the top. This is no interrogations, Doc. Believe me, if we interrogate you, you will know it. <laughs> well, that's true. That was a gentle conversation because when we interrogate you, especially in a murder or a serious, invest, uh, a serious uh, crime, yeah, the, we wouldn't afford you to be sitting in someone's home uh, under those type of circumstances. We're going to be in a more controlled environment. Dr. Locke is not above his frailties. But what I thought was interesting is remember back again, back with Conley, one of the things that I suspected Dr. Locke about was when Harry went to interview, well, when Harry went to his house for some insight on the follower, he had noticed that the pool water was still was the pool water was was a little choppy because like someone was in there. And remember, Dr. Locke answered the door. He didn't have his bathing suit on. He was in some clothes. And that right there kind of pointed me, you know, kind of nudged me. That Michael Connolly nudged me to suspect uh, to suspect Dr. Locke holding something back. And he was holding something back. But he was holding fact, he was holding back the fact that he had an affair with a student. And if you remember back in the very first episode, the very first podcast. We always said, my brother and I always said, hey, let the evidence follow where it may. Don't jump to conclusions. And I was, I, I was guilty every year, you know, because I'm thinking, that damn lock, he was up to something because why did, well, who was in the water? And he, why did he want Harry to know who was in the water? Now we see why. So after they cleared Dr. Locke on his um, alibi, and he wasn't the person who killed Chandler because he had an ironclad alibi, Bosch asked Dr. Locke, hey, would the follower want to gloat? And he says, yes. Again, Michael Connolly is setting the stage of how true things are. You wouldn't believe a lot of criminals just want to tell you about it. They want to tell you how smart they are. They want to blab about, you know, if it wasn't for, and it's always, well, if it wasn't for this, you would never court me. That, I, I love that line. Oh, but for the, my nosy neighbor, you would never court me. I'm like, okay, but you're still, you're here in handcuffs. So 
why didn't you account for your nosy neighbor? But see, I didn't, you know, you never say that. You don't say that because you always want to keep getting information. But again, Michael Connolly was right spot on. Most criminals, especially of this nature, want to gloat and tell someone how smart they are and how dumb the police are. So after Harry gets the information that the follower will want to gloat, he tells um, Dr. Locke, hey, you're in the clear. And again, from the book, I guess the only criminals that come back to the scene of the crime are in movies. And that brings us to this episode's question of the day. And the question of the day for chapters 29 through 33 is as follows. During a conversation between Bosch and Chief Irving, Irving states, anyway, the point is, uh, we could be wrong again. Right now, all we have are hunches. Good hunches, mind you. But that's all. I want to proceed a little more carefully this time. Translation was, you screwed us up with your hunches. Question. Where does the buck stop? Harry or Chief Irving? And as of the recording of this episode, 45% of you say the buck stops with Harry. 55% of you say the buck stops with Chief Irving. Wow. I'm really shocked about that. I'm really shocked about that because actually I thought more people would hold Harry responsible than Chief Irving. I want to thank one of the followers on Facebook who says, the chief, because he's the chief and responsible for what goes on in his command. I want to push back a little bit. There is a yes, but. And the but is that Harry is the D3, the weight's on him. He's the one who makes the investigative decisions. Again, he says, chief, we, I want to do this, this, or this. And yeah, the chief signs off on it so he can allocate resources. But it's up to Harry. It's his responsibility. But I really don't have, you know, a problem with 55% of you guys saying Chief Irving, or at least it's a 50-50 split, because that's actually pretty good. That's actually pretty good. I'm just so used to the weight being on the D3 that I had little blinders on. So thanks for participating in this poll and giving your feedback. Again, your feedbacks are phenomenal. And actually, this one right here is very uplifting that at least 55% of you which is half which is more than I would thought like I said when I started this uh, question of the day that Irving shares some of the responsibility on what happens with Bosch and that's very refreshing so thank you again for participating in the poll I'd like to also call attention to a Facebook posting where I'm quoting from Andy Chandler and she says, if the system turns away from the abuses afflicted on the guilty, then who could be next but the innocents? And that really touched me. That really touched me because most of the co-workers I knew guarded against this, always check themselves to make sure that you provide the same service to the guilty as you would do with the innocents because it is a slippery slope. And that, to me, that's where... That's what Honey Chandler, that's what they were getting to, Michael Connolly was getting to here, is that it is a slippery slope. And any good officer, any good law enforcement person 
always check themselves to make sure because you always say to yourself, um, well, would you want a cop? Or at least this is what I did. How would you want a police officer to treat your loved ones if they pulled them over investigating a crime or whatever the circumstances that you were interacting with them? And that kind of humanizes the person you're dealing with. And to me, that's what Michael Connelly is getting to, this slippery slope that could possibly happen if you don't check yourself. So thanks a lot, and let's get back to hitting the streets. Then Bosch is looking out the window, and he sees Brimmer you know, interviewing neighbors, and things just started clicking his head. So Bosch makes a show of going out to his car, knowing that Brimmer would be uh, shortly behind him. And he was right. Brimmer comes behind him. And again, Bosch makes a show of going into his trunk because now he has a hypothesis that he's working off of. He has a theory. He has a hunch that he's working off of. And they, they do a little chit-chat back, back and forth. And Bosch asks Brimmer for some cigarettes. And Brimmer pours out a pack of cigarettes. It happened to be Marlboros. And again, let's think about what was in the concrete, those Marlboro uh, cigarettes. And then, um, I like you. I'm not a smoker, but you know, I do remember them. You know, uh, Michael Collins says, uh, Brimmer then pulled out his Zippo, you know, his lighter to light the cigarette. And he did it with his left hand. And you know, when I read that, I, again, I said, that goddamn Michael Conley, oh my gosh. You know, Brimmer was uh, a mainstay with us. We knew who Brimmer was from the Black Echo. And again, that's one of those questions I want to ask Michael Conley. When did he know that he was going to shock us with Brimmer being a, a, a serial killer or a possible serial killer? But right now, it, it just seems now everything fits. So, you know, let's go back to the trial. During the trial, when Dr. Locke was on the stand and Chandler was trying to compare the, um, the profile for the uh, doll maker and Norman Church, it didn't fit. But it fit for Bremer. And then again, Michael Connolly set this up so long ago. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I never saw that coming. And that is such a brilliant piece of writing where you can't even guess who the, um, who the, who the bad guy is. And then we have Bosch being Bosch. Again, from the book. After leaving the scene at Honey Chandler's house, Bosch had gone home and slept for two hours. Then he had paced in his house on the hill, thinking about Bremer and seeing how perfect he fit the mold. He called Dr. Locke again, asked a few more general questions about the psychology of the follower. But he didn't tell Dr. Locke about Bremer. He told no one about this, thinking three strikes you were out. And, you know, this is actually going to get into what we just talked about with the question of the day, where, where did the buck stop? And Bosch is feeling, ultimately, it's his responsibility. You know, everyone's looking at him, even Chief Irving, everyone's looking at him. And, again, I understand how some people say that, you know, and again, thanks a lot for your feedback, that the buck stopped with Chief Irving. Really, no. I'm just going to reiterate again. The buck stops with Harry. 
everyone's looking at him. And, you know, you take on that mantle. I mean, even though he's not, quote unquote, uh, chief, but more importantly, he's an informal leader. And that D3, that D3 is heavy on his shoulders. And everyone looks at him to, for answers and for solutions. And he feels it right here. And But, you know, Harry's being Harry. He's putting in motion. He's going to put in motion some things that he normally does because he's a lone wolf. He does things by himself, uh, good or bad. He doesn't seem to learn too many lessons. But, hey, that's who, that's who he is, and this is, how we, this is why we like him. And, you know, let's not overlook that lie. Um, he had told no one about this, thinking three strikes, you're out. I mean, because first, let's, he, first he told everyone, even though he was very hesitant, he told everyone about more, and everyone jumped on board. Even the chief said, hey, we got to start somewhere. We got to start looking at the cops anyway. Then he flipped it. He thought it was Dr. Locke because of more. And again, his hunches and the investigation did tumble that way. But then now he does not want to go out there and say, okay, now I got a third suspect. Let's go after this third suspect. Because then everyone would be more like, mm, you know, even the chief said it, you know, we, you had hunches, damn good hunches, but we want to slow down this time. We want to take it easy, take it slow. So what's that line? Uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I like the way Harry sets up trying to take down Bremer. Because, you no, know, we see Harry then go to the, the garage where Bremer parks his car. And he follows Bremer White, goes to the grocery store and all that kind of stuff. But he, he is, and Harry does everything, a surveillance by himself. Now, doing a lone surveillance is a very difficult. It's very hard to do one surveillance, doing a surveillance by yourself. And there's some techniques we do, that we use. But you, we don't see Harry deploying those techniques right now. And I believe that he wants Bremer to know he's being followed. You know, it's not just a hunch of mine. I'm just looking at what Harry did in the past when it came to any time he needed some assistance for something. What's the first thing he did when he thought that Sylvia was the target of the uh, follower? He called Edgar. What did he do when Moore, uh, when, they, when they went to Moore's house? He called off everyone on the surveillance team but Edgar. And I think even this right here, he can trust Edgar for the quote-unquote three strikes. So if you really wanted to do a covert surveillance on Bremer and just want to do a two-man team, because a two-man team could cover Bremer by himself um, much better than Bosch is doing by himself, he would have called Edgar. But the fact that he didn't call Edgar makes me believe that he wanted Bremer to know that he was being followed. And then we see another attribute of Michael Connelly understanding the police world, because so Bosch follows Bremer all around, and then Bremer goes to his house, gets out of his car, goes inside, but doesn't, Bosch doesn't see any lights come on. So Bosch gets out, of his, um, gets out of his car and goes to Bremer's house and calls out for Bremer. And then Bremer actually comes up behind um, Harry and says, hey, why you, you know, what's going on? Why are you following me? And what Bosch does right here, Bosch watches his hands. And again, we learn as cops that the hands are the ones are the things you watch. You got to watch out for the different. No, the eyes don't hurt you, and very rarely is someone some UFC fighter where they're going to you know they can kick you in the head. But most people 
if they're going to attack you, it begins with the hands. So you learn to watch the hands, body language. You know, is this person aggressive? Are they approaching me? Are they, they, are they balling their fist up, you know, getting ready, getting pumped up, ready to do something? Or were they relaxed and all that kind of stuff? So you learn to watch the hands. And again, we see Harry right here watching the hands. So then we see Bosch invite himself in to Berman's place for some beer. And Berman says, we'll go into the living room. And Bosch then takes a you know, recorder, secretly uh, places it so he can record a conversation between himself and Brimmer. And so when Brimmer gets back, you know, one of the lines that, again, Bosch made it painfully obvious that he was following Brimmer. He gets into the house by himself. And then he says to Brimmer uh, from the book, tell me you did it for the stories or for the book to get above the fold to have a bestseller, whatever. But don't tell me you're the sick fuck that the shrinks say you are. So after Harry says that to Brimmer, Brimmer pretty much said, hey, you, I think you're under a lot of stress. You should go. Then Harry cuts him off and said, no, no, no. You're the one that's coming apart, Brimmer. You're making mistakes, a lot of them. And then Brimmer suddenly lunges at Bosch, pins him against the wall, and disarms him, takes his weapon, and points it at him. And we know that was orchestrated because Bosch goes in there by himself, understanding to get Brimmer to talk, he has to feel like he's the one in power using his ego against him because the, the gun is unloaded. We know the gun is, uh, well, shortly we find out the gun is unloaded. But again, that was part of the plan that Bosch was willing to do to go in there naked by himself. So during that conversation back and forth, one of the things that Michael Connolly did answer all along was who the hell was Brimmer's informant? When come to find out, it was himself. And, you know, then, again, Brimmer has been teasing Bosch. Let's go back to when Bosch found out that it was Edgar who was giving information to Chandler. And when Brimmer, you know, drove Bosch back to Parker Center, he told him, hey, Harry, you know, if you think that Lieutenant Pounds or Edgar is my source, forget about it. It was neither one of them. You would never know. You would never guess what he said. You would never guess who it is. Well, <laughs> you know, even back then, Michael Conley was giving us hints. And again, I don't know about you guys, but that went totally over my head. I did think the same thing of like, why did Bremer say that? Because even Harry said it. I wonder why he said it and said it in that manner. Again, Michael Conley was giving us these freaking clues that I was just so absorbed. Well, by that time, I was just spent to find out that it was Edgar giving information to Chandler. So that point, that little conversation afterwards went right over my head because I was still trying to process the fact that Edgar had betrayed Harry. And then we see the art of interviewing. Now, remember, at this point, Burma has a gun on Bosch, and he thinks he's in control. Again, a, good, a line from the book that captures this was, now, I don't need to remind you, but I will. I have the advantage here. So answer my questions. What mistakes have I made? Tell me what I did wrong, Harry, or I'll kneecap you with the first bullet. And so now, he, he is a rumor has taken the bait, and he thinks he's in control. But really, Bosch had him, because, again, Brimmer had all this, bit, all this pent-up anger, all this pent-up emotion. He wants to tell somebody. And Bosch asked Brimmer, why did you kill Chandler? 
and then just waited him out. Sometimes as a good investigator, you just have to sit back and listen. Now, I come at that from learning lessons. When I was a young investigator and interviewing subjects, I used to rush everything. I used to go in there and tell me what you did and why you did it and who was with you and just try to hit all the questions. Not sitting back, not sitting back and let the answers come to you. You know, you go in there with a broad stroke and then you let the person answer the question, answer the question. And then basically, based on that, their response, then dictates your next question. So don't go in there preloaded. Now, again, you have a general outline of the questions you want to ask. But I had to learn that the hard way because my first interviews, oh my goodness, they were just terrible. <laughs> they were terrible. And the good thing, I had some good senior investigators who kind of put their hand on my knee and or, or I had to learn, watch them interviewing someone. Then I learned how that, that flow of that you get into to get the answers that you want. So after Bremer pretty much confessed to everything, he then wants to end it. And so he pulls the trigger on Bosch and he has this metallic click. And, you know, then we see Michael Connolly just, you know, now, now I'm going to use the metaphor. We are boxers and he has, he has us in the corner and he's just throwing body blows at us because from the book, Bosch reached into his sock and pulled out the extra clip. The one that was loaded with 15 XTP bullets. <laughs> you know, I remember the XTPs came up when Chandler was, just, was Chandler was describing how Bosch quote unquote murdered Norman Church. And, you know, I saw that I'm like, you know, Michael, okay, you got me, you know, my hands up. Don't shoot. (laughs) You you don't have to hit with the XTPs also. (laughs) And then we also get a glimpse of the true nature of Brimmer. Brimmer is a coward. Because what happens? Bosch, he he pleads for Bosch, don't kill me, don't kill me. You know, he he when Bosch put the handcuffs on him, he wrestles around so he can have some scar marks on his uh on his wrist. So if I die, people can see it was a struggle. You know, you can see all the, prov- all the bravado has gone out of him. You know, he's just a guy, a coward, who uses weapon, his weapons to control women and to kill them, you know. And so he's just a straight-up coward. So at the Bosch of Russ Bremer, we have this from the book. The one person Bosch had told was Irving. He had the comms center patch him through on the phone line and in a half-an-hour-long conversation. He told the assistant chief every step he had taken and described every building block of evidence that led to the arrest. Either or both would come later, after it was seen whether the arrest would stick. Both men knew this. Again, in in my opinion, Irving knew who he was dealing with. Irving is not a stupid man. He knew that Bosch was going to do something on his own, be a lone wolf, because that's Bosch's nature. And by not Pairing him up, Irving was counting on that Bosch understood the risk of being a lone wolf, and he took it. He knew that Bosch is not afraid to take risk, but he also wanted to, he as in Irving wanted to get this homicide solved. So the fact that Irving didn't chastise him or congratulate him because they're gonna, he's going to wait and see how the chips fall, Bosch, that was an acceptable risk, and Bosch understood that. And again, that goes again, goes back to the question of the day. Because in my book, in my head, the buck stops with Bosch. 
you know, I like the interaction that Michael Connolly depicts with the filing deputy. So the next day, Bosch goes into the U.S. Attorney's Office, the, the Attorney's Office, and then goes to the filing clerk. And it was a young rookie uh, attorney, a newly lamented attorney, 26 years old, and he's telling Bosch, you know, how things are going to be. And then he kind of reluctantly tells Bosch, well, we're not going to file just yet because I like to have all the evidence before we file. And one of the lines, what I like happened from the book, Bosch got up and walked to the office open door. He stepped into the hallway and looked at the plastic nameplate affixed to the wall outside. Then he came back in. Bosch, what are you doing? That's funny. I thought you were the filing deputy. I didn't know you were the trial deputy, too. Well, see, <laughs> I honestly think Bosch didn't go look at the guy's name, the nameplate on the door. Bosch wanted to make sure no one was um, wit- could witness what he was saying, about to say to the, uh, the filing deputy. He wanted to make sure the coast was clear because then he proceeded to dress down the young uh, filing clerk, Mr. Newell, or uh, deputy uh, attorney Newell. And that's happened to me before. And this is why I like Michael Connolly, because he's pulling back the veil of things um, law enforcement related. So I had a covert operation. And during the covert operation, we had audio and video set up on the undercover. And so the evidence tech, you know, we end the field, you know, the deal's about to go down and he's wiring up the undercover. and. You know, we do, do, do checks. You know, we do our due diligence. We do our checks to make sure everything's working. So the tech comes to me and says to me, hey, Phil, for some reason, the color recorder isn't working. And, but I got the old standby black and white. You want to use it? I'm like, well, yeah, let's use it. I'm not going to reschedule a covert operation just because the goddamn thing's not color. Do it. Let's go for it. So the meat goes down, get great evidence. and. So then you fast forward to the filing deputy. You know, we locked the guy up and I'm presenting the evidence just like, you know, Bosch did here with the filing deputy. And this young guy, this young kid, you know, I'm showing it to him and he looks at me, you know, he's squinting his eyes and looks at me. You know, you, know, you would think you know, a, a skunk was in his room or something like that. He goes, oh, uh, what's up with this video? Now, the black and whites and the old, again, I'm not going to get too technical, but it was um, RF feet fed and really grainy. It was really, the, the audio, the video was not that good. Audio was perfect, but the video wasn't good. I, but you can clearly see the undercover and the bad guy, you know, conversing and talking about, you know, the, uh, the illicit act. He goes, what's, what's up with this video? And I explained it to him just like Harry did, you know, hey, you know, shit happens. We're in the field, you know, the, the uh, high definition is not working. And uh, so we had to use the backup. And the guy, this asshole says, well, I don't think I'm going to use this. And I looked at him and said, what? What the fuck? What the fuck? Why? Why not? Well, you know, juries nowadays want to see high definition. They want to see color. You know, it pops better. And I looked at the guy and said, fucker. You know, <laughs> so you understand an officer risked his fucking life for this? You're going to use it. And, you know, we got into it, you know. And, but, say the least, we did use it. But I totally get what Harry was going through here. And again, this is why I like Michael Conley because he has great insight to the law enforcement world. So we also then, you know, fast forward to 
Perry and Edgar visiting High Power. Again, now High Power, we already know what High Power is. Again, the whole world of Michael Conley is starting to come together. So you don't really have to go back into the backstory of what High Power is. So they visit High Power because they're going to get an exam, um, get DNA and exemplary um, evidence from samples from Brimmer, you know, hair, teeth marks, and the whole nine yards because they got a warrant. And then something happened. Again, I wonder if you, did you guys pick up on something? Because things changed after this event. After Bosch and Edgar collected the evidence, the DNA evidence, the hair fibers and all that kind of stuff from Bremer, Bosch went to drop off the evidence to Amato. Edgar went and did some other work. And nowadays, we, that would never happen. Bosch and Edgar would stay together until they dropped off the evidence to a model together. And that's changed because of the OJ trial, at least again, in, just in my humble opinion, all that changed because what happened in the OJ trial? During the OJ trial, it was the defense had brought up that the blood was planted and that one of the detectives had the uh, sample of OJ's blood. And he was by himself. And, you know, I'm not going to revisit the OJ trial. But to counteract that assumption, we as in law enforcement had to change. And it's always a two-man team when it comes to evidence and transferring evidence from one location to another. And I just, I picked up on that because nowadays, now I used to do that all, all the time back in the, uh, back in the day. But after the OJ trial, all that shit changed. And I just thought that was interesting because when I reread that, I'm like, ooh, we won't do that. We wouldn't do that nowadays because that would be a target, a target rich vulnerability that any good defense counsel would just obliterate Harry on the stand. Well, detective, uh, who went with you when you dropped off this hair and fibers to um, Mr. Amato while I was by myself? Well, isn't it true that you were at the house, at my client's house? Yes, it is. So isn't it true that you possibly could have went and found some hair and fibers in his house and implanted this, this, this evidence? Again, you see, that's very, it's so absurd. But why even open yourself up to that line of questioning? And that's why we, take, we took, took on the new protocols that two officers will go together when you transport or handling different evidence. So then shortly thereafter, Edgar comes back because Edgar took the teeth imprint, imprints and he did a comparison and it came, you know, came across the air. He called up and said, hey, we're golden. The teeth marks, the teeth marks that they got off of Chandler match up with Brimmer. And finally, Chief Irving you know, tells Bosch, we're golden, which means you're in the clear. I'm, you know, nothing's going to come back on you. And again, Bosch has said he understood that. He understood when he told um, Irving all the events that led up to Brimmer's arrest that he took the risk and he understood the risk. So now Irving's telling Bosch, we're golden, don't worry about it. We see Harry then takes off a couple of days because all the overtime he accumulated and let the investigative team continue investigation. And Harry uh, later on gets a call from Edgar, again from the book. Everything, we got everything. We got the cuffs, belts, gags, a knife, even a Glock 9. The whole killing kit. He must have used the gun to control them. That's why there was no signs of struggle at Chandler's. He had used a gun. We figured 
he hold it on them until he would cuff them and gag them. From the tapes, it looks like all the killings took place at Burma's house, the rear bedroom, except Chandler, of course. She got it at home. Those tapes, Harry, I couldn't watch. You know, again, that just shows the, the humanity of police officers. Because, again, even Harry back, I, told, I said earlier during his podcast, you know, he, he kind of respected Chandler. He even said it, no amount of mental tricks could take away the horrors that he did not want to see. And that even goes to Edgar. You know, here's this seasoned homicide investigator. And he didn't want to watch those tapes either. But one of the things I like is, as they're talking, Edgar tells Bosch, you know, how strange it is that Brimmer was the uh, killer. And he goes, yeah, you know, I knew that guy too. <laughs> and poor Edgar, what he's really saying is, yeah, I used to be one of his sources also. <laughs> And so after him and Edgar get off the phone later on, Sylvia comes by Bosch's home and tells him that, that she wants to work things out. And, you know, she's going to have to accept his life mission from the book. Do you want to go away this weekend? He asked. Get away from the city? We can take that trip up to Long Pine. Stay in the cabin until tomorrow night. That would be wonderful. I could, uh, we could use it. A few minutes later, she added, we might not be able to get a cabin, Harry. There's so few of them, and they're usually booked by Friday. I already had one reserved. She turned around so she could face him. She smiled slyly and said, oh, so you knew all the time. You were just hanging around, waiting for me to come back. No sleepless nights, no surprises. He didn't smile. He shook his head. And for a few moments, he looked out over the dying lights reflected on the west wall of the San Gabriels. I didn't know Sylvia, he said. I hope. And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person for chapter 29 through 33 of The Concrete Blonde is Honey Chandler. And I say Honey Chandler because as I've been saying throughout this book, I admire Honey Chandler. Harry admires Honey Chandler just for her tenacity. Now, her coming up cops, you know, uh, if I was on the stand, I wouldn't admire her so much. But what really got me was a couple of things that Bosch via uh, Michael Conley pointed out. It's her, you got to love her spirit, that blue flame, that hot 
blue flame of hers. And the fact Harry pointed out to Brimmer at the end, that's why Brimmer was disintegrating because he was biting and uh, burning Chandler because he wanted that note. He wanted that letter back and she didn't give it to him. And so at the end of the day, Honey Chandler beat Brimmer. And I hope that, you know, uh, that I would have that much courage faced with that much adversity. So again, my everyone counts or no one counts person for chapters 29 through 33 is Honey Chandler. This concludes our review of the Michael Conley book, The Concrete Blonde. Wow. Can you guys believe it? We are three books down. And I don't know about you, but I am still so excited, so jazzed about doing this podcast. Thank you, everyone. I never thought that I would be one, if not now, up to three books down, going on to our fourth book. You know, this is absolutely phenomenal. And if I haven't said it, Please understand, I really appreciate you guys, your patience, your staying with me, your interaction, everything, because I do this because I like it, but I definitely get off on the feedback and interaction between all you guys out there in the Michael Connolly, Perry Bosch world. And as always, you can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. And also, 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 again, I said it before, it's worth keep saying it again, your comments and interactions are valuable. Because I have one opinions, and you know what they say about opinions, I like assholes, everyone has one. So I like to hear you guys' opinions. And so your feedbacks are welcome, you know, good, bad, or indifference, just keep them coming, keep them coming. Lastly, don't forget to join us at www.thethemthroughlinepod.com for more investigative content where you will find a more detailed experience concerning Michael Connolly and Harry Bosch. So next up on the Thin Blue Line, we will start a deep dive into the fourth book of the Harry Bosch world, The Last Coyote, and we will be reviewing chapters one through four. As always, I'm Phil Parker, and I'm 10-7 for the remainder. <laughs> <laughs>